Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know. I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming yet-to-be-revealed third Banneker Bones adventure, which should be available early next year. Uh, and I never get tired of talking about them. You'd think I would. Nope. I want you to know that <laughs> the books are available. I love them with my whole heart. Um, they are the story of an 11-year-old biracial boy genius detective uh, in a world of robots not entirely uh, unlike The Wooden Prince uh, by today's guest, Jean-Claude Bemis. Um, if you're curious about it, and why not? You, you watch or listen to the show. You like me. Don't you want to know after all this time if I can write? You can find out for free. The um, uh, first two bannikers are available as paperbacks and ebooks. The first book is available as an audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. And the ebook for Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is free to download wherever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So go download your copy when you like it and you're hooked on the series. Well, come back with money for the for the sequels. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some stories for older readers, such as the young adult novel, Altogether Now, A Zombie Story, uh, which is spoiler uh, about zombies. Um, and then All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story and the five volume serial novel, The Book of David, uh, which is an absolutely crazy book to be uh, plugging on a show about middle grade fiction. But uh, I do it every week. <laughs> so we'll keep doing it, I suppose. Uh, it's five chapters long. Uh, if you're curious about that, it's me doing my best Stephen King impression. Uh, you can get the Book of David, Chapter One, uh, as an ebook to download for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, coming up on the show, we have got a lot of great guests planned, as always. Uh, although I am going to be looking to space these episodes out a little bit, just because it's such a, a pleasure and a privilege to get to talk with these fine folks that I really want to take our time. Uh, and make sure that um, that I'm not wearing me out and then I'm not wearing you out, esteemed audience. Uh, but coming up in the near future, we're going to be chatting with authors Mira Bartok, uh, Francesca Zappia, Greg Millman. Um, we're also going to be talking with some literary agents and publishing professionals. If you want to keep up to date with what's going on at the, uh, with the show, as always, you can keep uh, tabs on the schedule at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, not only that, but you can read interviews uh, with hundreds of authors and literary agents, including today's guest, uh, author John claude Bemis. Uh, John, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you, Rob? I am excellent. I got through the whole intro, so now whew, we're calm. We can just chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been looking forward to this. Uh... I appreciate you. you making the time because uh, I am uh, been a fan of yours for I was looking back, I think, about nine years now. Uh -huh. um, since uh, I first encountered you with the nine pound hammer uh -huh. uh, and became a, a, a fan immediately. Uh, and I really enjoyed um, the wooden prints. Hold it up for anybody watching. Um, so I'm terrible about summarizing other people's biographies and other people's books. So probably the best place to start is if you just would give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your, of your career thus far. Sure, yeah. Well, I came at being a children's book author by way of being an elementary school teacher. I taught uh, fourth and fifth grade for, I guess, 13 years. And it was it was during that time that I was spending a lot of time, um, obviously, talking about books with my kids, reading books together. Just And it just, it ignited that side of me that always loved writing books, but pushed it up to a new level. And 
Um, so, and as you mentioned, that first book, The Nine Pound Hammer, came out 10 years ago, just a couple, just like maybe two weeks ago. It hit its 10-year anniversary. Um, Happy anniversary. Thank you, yes. <laughs> um, and that is, that's one of six, is that right, six novels that I've done. The, the Nine Pound Hammer is the first book in a trilogy, the Clockwork Dark trilogy. And um, I did a post-apocalyptic uh, animal novel after that, uh, The Prince Who Fell from the Sky. And then the new series that we're going to be talking about, this Out of Abaton with The Wooden Prince and Lord of Monsters. Also, I've done, I did one picture book for Heifer International. It's a little different kind of experience. You know, it was not with a traditional publisher, but it was, you know, Heifer's one of those um, organizations, relief organizations that works to help fight hunger and poverty around the world. And so I got to go to Rwanda and do research there, uh, meeting families to write that picture book, which is called Flora and the Runaway Rooster. Yeah. And so that's been that's been my book career with that. And I, of course, as a writer, you know, as a working artist, we do a lot of other things as well. And um, I do a lot of, in addition to doing school visits, of course, just as part of my author job. Um, I continue to to love to teach, but now I'm teaching. Uh, classes and workshops for kids, but also for adults who are interested in children's book writing. So I still get to scratch that little teaching itch that I have. So. Fantastic. Are you uh, teaching up coming up anytime soon where people could sign up to come see you? Well, if people are in North Carolina, I am teaching some writing workshops that um, here in the Triangle area. I'm in Hillsboro, which is just outside of kind of Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area. And so, yeah, I have a couple of weekend workshops, one on deepening our characters. And I've got another one coming up in November that is on, um, so you finished a first draft and it's kind of helping people to think about those next steps with revisions, just making sure the novel that they're working on is as strong as possible and how to start that, that process of submitting to agents, the whole publication journey. Yes, yes. as uh, long and, and pleasurable as it always is. <laughs> it has its ups and downs. <laughs> that roller coaster well, ride. Mental note: knowing that you're you're teaching a whole course on revision, I'm definitely going to pick your brain on revision before we're done because it sounds right. like you're, yeah. you've got some great insight and are willing to share. Thanks. Yeah, I would love or, to talk. I hope, or, or maybe that's behind the paywall. I've got to come to North Carolina for that. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> we'll give people a preview so, for those who can't make it. Perfect. Look good for you, giving back to the author community. Thanks. Got a pretty big author community there in, in Hillsborough, right? Like Stephen Messer and, and other folks that you've yeah. known. Yeah, yeah, there are. You know, well, I mean, for in the children's book world, North Carolina, yeah, it's just jam packed with a lot of great children's book authors. Um, and but in Hillsborough specifically, this little town that I live in, it's probably it's got to just be six thousand, maybe five thousand, six thousand people. Relatively small, but um, I remember our public library did a display back at Christmas where they put up um, all the books for Hillsborough area writers. And there was, I think, 70, 80 different people. So there's a lot of writers in Hillsborough, um, so, which makes it a wonderful place to live, a really creative environment and fun being around all those folks. Not as many children's book writers in Hillsborough. A lot of, a lot of the Hillsborough writers are those kind of icons of Southern literature, Lee Smith and Alan Gerganus and Jill McCorkle and even Francis Mays, who wrote Under a Tuscan Sun, lives here in Hillsborough as well. 
Very cool. So you get to go out and, and interact with uh, those authors on a pretty regular basis then? Well, they interact with everybody. It's it's that kind of town where everyone knows everybody and they don't keep to themselves. Every, it seems like the whole writing and artistic community here is just very much a part of everyday life in Hillsboro. Um, it's it's just that kind of town. So it isn't, it's not very hard to uh, get in touch with them. In fact, uh, Lee Smith had a, a, a told me a funny story recently, which was that her house, which is right in, she has this beautiful historic house right in the middle of the downtown. And it looks very similar to a historic property that is open to the public that is uh, just a block away from hers. And she was saying that she was, her, her husband hadn't even gotten out of bed and she was down making coffee when she found these uh, three women just standing around in her living room <laughs> who thought that they were at the other place. <laughs> So she she pulled out some muffins and served them coffee and then uh, talked with them for a little bit and sent them down to the real place that they were, they were going to. So it's that kind of place. Probably sold a couple of books. <laughs> yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully so. Is that the kind of town where people just leave their, their door open so tourists can wander in? I guess so. Maybe I shouldn't be advertising that about Lee. Hopefully she can <laughs> her door now. <laughs> I know she's learned her lesson. There's a yes, sign that says, we're armed. Stay out. <laughs> Outstanding. That's that's all in that town. You said of about 7,000 people that you've got 80 authors, or is that just in the wider area? That's just Hillsborough. So you mentioned Stephen Messer before, um, who's an incredible middle grade author. And he, he actually, he doesn't live in Hillsborough. He lives in Durham, which is just 20 minutes away. Um, so the big city compared to little Hillsborough. Um, so yeah, so we have... That's that number, that 70, 80 are just in the town of Hillsborough. But then if you grow it out towards the larger triangle uh, area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, there's just so many more, so many more. It's a wonderful place. I mean, we for the children's book community, we even there's there's a group that just we have kid lit drink night once a month where just the local children's book authors, um, aspiring and published, uh, get together for beers. Uh, one Saturday a month and catch up on all that. So it's the community is very connected with one another. You sold me. I'm done with Indiana. I'm on my way. Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> we, we welcome you with open arms, Rob. <laughs> have you uh, always lived in uh, North Carolina, then? I have, yes. Uh, I grew up in, in the swampiest, flattest, most rural part of eastern North Carolina. Um, which just got socked with another hurricane, as <laughs> happens down there a lot. Um, but then I went to school at UNC Chapel Hill, and so I've been up here in um, in the Triangle area of North Carolina now for um, 25 years or more. So yeah, I remember reading in your bio that you've been bitten by a snake, but not an alligator. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, down in Pamlico County in eastern North Carolina, where I grew up, yeah, there are, there are alligators. Uh, people see them. I've never heard of anyone getting attacked by an alligator down there. But yes, I got bit by a water moccasin um, when I was maybe 18 or 19. Uh, but that's uh, that's par for the course growing, <laughs> growing up in eastern North Carolina. I was really lucky. It actually... Um, I was in the water when it happened, and so I thought I got stung by a jellyfish, and um, it wasn't until I got out that I saw the bite marks on it. And at that point, there was no swelling. It wasn't black, uh, so I knew I hadn't gotten venom in me, but I went to the, the you know the emergency clinic anyway just to make sure, and uh, 
and when he measured it, he said, yeah, this was this was a water moccasin. You got bit by a big one so, and you got really lucky, <laughs> which I feel lucky that I didn't see it. I think I would I think I would have been a lot more uh, terrified if I had that image in my head of the the water moccasin <laughs> biting me on the leg. <laughs> could have led to a whole horror trilogy. <laughs> yeah, I could have. Yeah. <laughs> Although I kind of wonder now if, you know, since I didn't get venom in me, maybe maybe that's one of my superpowers. I, I'm immune to snake venom, so. I don't know that I'll test that anytime soon, but. <laughs> well, now that opens up the door to, to what other superpowers do you have, Jeff Claudius? <laughs> <laughs> Lots waiting to be discovered. I don't, I don't know how much it is <laughs> to put myself in harm's way to discover <laughs> what else I can do. So. I like to think that if uh, I, I develop superpowers, that hooray, uh, yeah. now I'll fly to work instead of drive, but I'm still going to mostly write. And then the people are calling out, help, help, we need a superhero. I'm trying to write here. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's after I finish my... the draft. Yeah, that, that other that superpower stuff, that's not my passion. It's not like writing. <laughs> Do you plan uh, to stick around in North Carolina for the foreseeable future? Oh, yeah, North Carolina. This is home for us now. Um, and especially this community of Hillsboro. Um, again, just cause, just being surrounded by so many artistic uh, creative people, um, and it's the kind of community where when we go to the grocery store or our little coffee shop or some of the bars in town, everyone knows your name, you know? Our daughter has grown up in a town where she can go into any shop and people know who she is, and we know them. So it's nice to have a town like that where people know each other's names. So, I grew yeah. up in a town like that. Yeah, did you? Yeah, in uh -huh. Indiana? Oh, yeah, a little town called Lebanon, Indiana, yeah. uh, which is not too terribly far, about 30 minutes uh, from where I am now. Uh, and that's usually that's the double for uh, Harrington is the fictional town I write about in some of my horror stories. Uh, I'm talking about Lebanon. Uh, yeah, so right. if I start a new horror story, sometimes I'll head 30 minutes, uh, go visit some old friends and walk the park and look around. And go, OK, yep, I remember. I remember everything I need to know. Now I can go write about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to draw on that. So what's well, and it's nice living in a community like this because you know as as writers you you can get you can be kind of isolated, especially if if you're doing it full time as a gig and um being at home whenever I because I have this extroverted side to me, you know, I'm I enjoy the solitude. I love just being in my office all day, but sometimes I just need a little social interaction. And so it's very easy to just walk out the door from my house, walk into downtown Hillsboro, visit some people in the coffee shop, you know, or grab lunch and talk to folks and then come back and get to work. So it's, it, it helps, helps me to have to not be too isolated from others. That was actually one of my motivations for starting this show. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a tight, tight, tight knit community of writers here in Indiana that I mean, is my uh, critique group, and I've got friends through the Indiana Writers Center and folks that I know. Uh, and we we don't I don't know that we have quite as many as Hurlsa Hillsboro, but we're doing all right here in Indianapolis. I'm sure uh, we see John Green walking around once in a right. while. <laughs> I haven't introduced myself yet, but but I know he's in town. Yeah. <laughs> we we all feel better just knowing he's here. That's right. Um, and. Uh, Oh, where was I going with that? Oh, uh, but just this uh, opportunity, you and I were talking before we got started, I've been uh, doing a stay-at-home uh, dad thing, artist, writer life uh, for the past couple of years. 
and so it's so nice to just have an adult conversation. We're probably not going to discuss Daniel Tiger. It's not coming up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because it's true. You need, you know, for most people, other people's jobs, they have, they, you know, they have the the camaraderie of of seeing folks every day that they can bounce around ideas off of with, the, with their work. And for us, we don't often have the easy availability. I mean, obviously we could get on the phone or email somebody, but it's not the same as, as just being in a workplace environment where there are lots of other people around. So Unless, we have to seek uh, out another writer. They're probably going to say, John, I'm at work. I, I can't talk to you. Now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, nice thing about uh, my critique group is on and off, we'll do um, uh, writing sessions together where we will we'll, we'll Skype or, or FaceTime and uh, and then, you know, we'll talk for 20 minutes about what everybody's working on. Then we break for an hour and come back uh, for another 20 minutes. And like, did you do anything or did you stare at internet, the Internet the whole time? What did you do for that hour? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's and you're um, you're a traveler because you you get out there and you you you've got kind of an adventurous side, right? I I, I saw the photos on your side of you and the gorillas. You went to Rwanda. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I love to. Tra- yeah. I've been all over. I've been Japan, Iceland, uh, the Central America, a lot of time in in Europe. So yeah, I just I love I love travel and um, from a think from an artist you know because this is what we're our audience is here for is that creative side but I, I i feel like when you get out of your comfort zone and you when you're in a foreign country you have to kind of figure out how the rules work you know the language is different the money's different the the just everyday norms of cars and restaurants and all that kind of stuff can be different so it it puts you in a in a place where you you have to adapt to whatever the new rules are. And, and I think that that really triggers something in your brain, you know, a real, a, you know, more, in other words, heightens creativity that it, it, I, I often find when I go on a trip like that, that I get a big creative bump afterwards from it. So. Is that just because you're broadening your perspective of all the different uh, ways that society can structure itself and what's possible with humanity or what, what do you take away from travel? Well, part of it is that, and part of it is just, um, you know, if if our imagination is like a big toy chest full of all sorts of things that we can pull out and play with uh, in our stories, when you travel, you're just adding a lot more variety into that toy chest, more things to play with, um, you know, when you come back to your story. And in fact, I mean, we'll get into The Wooden Prince, but that was a story that that in large part grew out of multiple trips to to Italy. Uh, not where I was doing specific research, but just being over there and daydreaming as uh, we writers often do, um, and just thinking a lot about what it would be like to set a story here in Italy um, that that helped to grow that. I don't know, in other words, that the story would have that I, that, that would have necessarily been a story I would have written if it hadn't been a place that I'd been traveling to. We talk about uh, anything you want whenever we want, so we start right. with Prince. Yeah. Uh, so what what was it and why you were in Italy that led you to start thinking about the wooden prince or how did the story come about? Well, you, you know how like a lot of times with story ideas, when it's when it's in those early days where you don't yet know who the characters are, you don't really yet know what the story is yet. You just are just find yourself when you have that time to be in your imagination, daydreaming, thinking about particular things. 
And it was, and, and some of the things that I think were the pieces that at first didn't seem like they fit together, but started to come together into this idea for the wooden prints were, um, when I travel, I often like to read nonfiction about a place. And um, one thing that I, I mean, Italy is is interesting just because I like the Renaissance and some of Da Vinci. You, you see a lot of obviously Da Vinci art and architecture and sculpture over there. But it was on one of those trips that I'd been getting reading a little bit about like Da Vinci's designs. You know, those a lot of those things that he the the strange uh, tanks and flying machines and things that uh, he was never able to build uh, for the most part. Um, and so I've been thinking about that and had also been reading a little bit about European legends, like the legend of Prester John, who was this kind of, he's hes not widely known or talked about today, but in medieval Europe, he was a big deal. He was, he was uh, the urban legend of medieval Europe that people thought that Prester John was this ruler that was, maybe he's in Africa, maybe he's in Asia, maybe he's on an island somewhere. If we can only find him, we'll be able to bring all these wonders back to Europe. And so it was some of those various things, but then ultimately when you're in Italy, Pinocchio is on everything. I mean, he's on every postcard, he's on t-shirts, you know, every little tourist shop has Pinocchio on it. And, and, and the idea just finally came together of, I would like to put Pinocchio, take the Pinocchio story and retell it in a world where these where Prester John has been discovered, that his wonders have been brought in almost the way the Silk Road brought in a lot of things from Asia, introduced a lot of um, Asian things into uh, Italy. And, um, but here we have all these other wonders that have been introduced and people like Leonardo da Vinci are able to actually build some of their strange machines. And so it, yeah, I, I saw that you you had mentioned in, in one of the emails about the Da Vinci punk. Yeah, I saw you calling the books that. I thought, oh my gosh, what a wonderful new genre that that you've invented. <laughs> yeah, because you know, with the nine pound hammer, I love I love some steampunk. But this is uh this yeah this world of the wooden prints is one that is even uh, there's there's not even uh, steam technology here. So this is it's all Da Vinci punk. It's all like that kind of more medieval and Renaissance uh, technology that is has been modified for magical purposes. Um, but I guess maybe I should uh, tell our readers just the basics of what The Wooden Prince is about, because it is it is a reimagining of the Pinocchio story. And I did want to ask you, did you start with Pinocchio or did you start with, this is a wonderful world, why don't I put Pinocchio in it? I started with the world, first of all. I had been wanting to do something again. Um, I, I just had been fascinated with this idea of Prester John. Um, you know, the kind of what if of history um, you know, the what if Prester John had been real? What if explorers had to discovered this magical kingdom that was within our historical world and how it might have sent history in a different direction? Um, I like those kind of plays where I, I love a good magical world like Narnia or Middle Earth that is just entirely its own thing. But but there's something that I like also about taking uh, the the. Um, historical and factual aspects of culture and history, and then playing with that what if aspect of where it might have gone, gone differently given certain circumstances. Um, so it was that world first. Uh, it was it was imagining the world before the Pinocchio thing was only something later. I had actually been thinking of another 
idea to do with Pinocchio, more of a sci-fi kind of approach to a Pinocchio. But then I, and then I, I just realized I kept coming back to that Steven Spielberg AI movie, which was pretty much Pinocchio retold in science fiction form. <laughs> so, so the most um, depressing possible version. <laughs> yeah, that was such a downer of an ending, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, I do love that movie, though, oddly enough, but, um, yeah, I, so... I, I love it. Uh, after several repeat viewings, yes. and I took a class on the films of Stanley Kubrick that gave me a better appreciation for, like, oh, I see what you're doing, because yeah. I went and expected, okay, it's E.T., but with a robot, and that's no, not what I got. No, no, it's a downer. <laughs> it's a real downer. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I've been fascinated, I mean, Pinocchio, in a way, um, as a kind of archetypal character this figure of Pinocchio I I think it's just interesting um because of the in that way that often sci-fi readers um love the idea of robots and artificial intelligence because it kind of gives us that possibility of what 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 does it mean to be human you know what does it mean to be alive in the world and by watching a, a, a robot or AI wrestle with that it gives a, a kind of interesting window into it. Pinocchio, in a way, does the same thing. I mean, he's a, in the original story, he's a wooden puppet who is just kind of awakening and coming to life in the world and trying to figure out what friendships are, you know, what family is. And at least the original story didn't do quite as, quite as much with that, but that was more what I wanted to see of the Pinocchio story, to uh, make my Pinocchio not a little toy robot. Uh, I mean, sorry, not a little well, not a robot, but not a, a little um, wooden puppet, but to have it in this world where the calls of da, you know, Leonardo da Vinci kind of technology, um, they are building these mechanical servants and soldiers called Ultima that are all across this empire where the story is set. And Pinocchio is just one of them. But the thing that makes him special is that as the story opens, he these these Ultima don't normally think for themselves. They just do what they're told. They don't feel anything. Uh, they don't wonder about things. And here we have Pinocchio mysteriously one day starting to ask questions, starting to wonder, starting to feel emotions that he's never felt before, emotions that no Ultima really should be feeling. Um, so it was, it was a fun opportunity to play with that that character, you know, the, the newness. Because I do, I often think about um, maybe it's the classroom teacher in me, or maybe this is at the heart of why I love children's literature so much, is that I'm, I'm just quite fascinated with childhood in general, the, the, the transformation that we make across that period of childhood. And so, and I, I, I don't remember a specific moment from my childhood, but I do remember little moments a feeling like I was awakening to what it was like to be alive. You know, that little moment when you're a kid where all of a sudden you realize, I'm not going to be a kid forever. I'm going to actually be a grown-up one day like my parents. And starting to, you know, that that kind of, it seems kind of silly in a way, but it's also can be a revelation for a kid, you know, that, oh yeah, it should be so obvious, but I really am going to be a grown-up. What is that going to be like? And and um, those little moments, in, in other words, feel like awakenings uh for children and um so i wanted pinocchio to reflect that but it's all kind of compressed for him into the the span of a couple of weeks as the story goes so 
That makes uh, perfect sense now that you say that, because that is very much what the Pinocchio story has always been about, and certainly what uh, your version of right. Pinocchio is about. Um, oh, where to where to start with uh, with this book? Uh, <laughs> I love what you did with uh, with Geppetto, because all the all the all the touch points are there. There's a cricket. Don't not to worry, esteemed audience, you're gonna yep. get it. <laughs> you get your cricket. You get your blue fairy. You get your uh, getting swallowed by. Not a whale, but a sea monster, right? A so. whale-ish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, right away, like, Geppetto was always, um, at least in, in my touch point, of course, although I've read a couple of different versions of Pinocchio, has always been the Disney cartoon, uh, which I feel, and in fact, I saw a, a, a picture of your office where you've got a, a picture of the Disney Pinocchio, at least when the picture was taken. Yeah. Uh, you had it framed above your desk. Yes. Um, did you have that in your mind as your version of Pinocchio prior to Italy, or what was your version going in? Well, um, I think that my I didn't I will admit I didn't particularly love Pinocchio. I didn't love that Disney movie. I think that Walt Disney did some brilliant things with with the movie. Um, in in the original Carlo Collati story, uh, the cricket is not Jiminy Cricket, but he's just called the talking cricket. And Pinocchio smashes him in like one of the first chapters with a hammer and and kills him. You know, and so that 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 you know that idea that Disney Walt Disney had of let's make the cricket Pinocchio's conscience. So it'll be his traveling companion across this. He says some of those things were really smart, but in general, I didn't love the way the Disney movie and a lot of the originals, like the Carlo Collati, were we're a little preachy to kids, you know, a little bit of this, like, don't be a naughty kid. Don't be a bad boy. Uh, listen to your parents. Don't lie. And th that's something that just always rubbed me wrong about the story. And, and so I felt like, well, if Disney can, if Walt Disney can update the original Carlo Collati story and take it wherever he wants, I'm going to do it as well. And, uh, um, and, and you just don't see, I think there's a reason that, you don't see Pinocchio so much uh, in, in um, you know, younger readers aren't reading the story today of the original Pinocchio in the same way that they read Peter Pan. You know, Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, um, they have they have really kind of held up in a lot of ways. And I think there's a reason that Pinocchio's story has not held up. It was time for a, a modern update, in my opinion. Well, I do love the idea of, oh, look, that cricket is talking. Smash! Yeah, it's kind of funny actually. It's shocking if you if you're if you're thinking of Jiminy Crickets. Just these are immediate questions about that world. Are, are are talking crickets abundant? Can you go and get another one? Yeah, and that was part of what was fun for me was the to try to answer. You know, in the original one, yeah, they have talking crickets. They have the fox and the cat who walk on their hind legs and wear clothes, and it it just has that kind of fairy tale quality in the original. Uh, and I wanted to take that and do that little more epic fantasy thing of the world building behind it to explain, you know, why do we have a talking cricket in this world? Why do we have a fox and a cat who actually, you know, are kind of anthropomorphized uh, like humans? And um, and here, that's where I got to play on that Prester John thing, that all of these uh, these creatures have been introduced into this Renaissance Italy uh, by way of his kingdom brought in well, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, detailed explanation i felt by the time i got to the end um that if this were offered i could go and take a, a master's class on uh, on designing out of media and and transmutation and by god i, I could be a geppetto 
<laughs> they had the technology available. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to talk to you about world building, but I just wanted to compliment you, Geppetto, because Geppetto was always, at least from the, the Disney cartoon, was the problematic character for me. Because uh, he's just, he's not good at being Geppetto. Like, he makes the puppet, and he's, he's sad, and he's like, oh, I wish I had a real boy. And then the blue fairy comes, makes him a real boy. And then the first thing he does is like, well, time for school. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he finds out his, his little boy that he's wished for is lost, he's like, well, I, I guess the only place he could be is the sea. That's where I'll go check. And that, yeah, yeah, the logic is off, isn't it? <laughs> Whereas this Geppetto... Um, you can imagine what his life is like if Pinocchio never comes into it. He's got uh, a fairly tragic backstory. I don't know how spoiler we, we want to get. That's okay, yeah. But uh, he's got, he's a spy. <laughs> he's in motion. He's uh, yeah. uh, risking himself, uh, risking prison at every turn. That's this right. is made Geppetto one of my least favorite uh, characters in, in children's literature genuinely compelling through your retail oh, good good thank you yeah it was fun to make him yeah this fugitive on the run and um and have more of a reason that he might feel conflicted about you know could pinocchio be uh a, a child to him could it could he he you know be a parent to this ultima this little wooden boy um having gone through the loss of his uh, the, yeah the tragic loss of his own family uh, but thanks. Yeah, he was a fun character to to play with, and so, and and to tease that out a little bit more because in the original, the Geppetto just he wants a son. He just wants a little boy, and this one, he's not quite motivated in, in that same way. So it's the the getting to that point was is a little more of a challenge for both Geppetto and Pinocchio. You know, the original Geppetto, if I'm the uh, the adoption board in my mind, has to deny. No, that's yeah, not a suitable for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure this Geppetto would get get approved either, but <laughs> he's got plenty of flaws of his own. <laughs> that's true. Although I love the uh, moment without without getting uh, too deeper or spoiler, because you know he's uh, Pinocchio is coming about and understanding what is life, what what am I? Um, he's um. Uh, Geppetto gives him a little speech about um, all of uh, life is precious. This is the difference between us and the Automedios. We, we, we're uh, human beings that are transmuted uh, of the spiritual uh, beings that, that contain us, and that is sacred. And then literally within that, I think it's the same chapter, uh, they come across Geppetto's home. It's like, oh, yeah, this is where they came through and they killed everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the kind of irony of this is what you were supposed to be. But <laughs> so you can just see little poor Pinocchio's uh, gears turning like, whoa, wait a, wait a minute. This isn't adding up. <laughs> yeah, I thought you just said that life was precious. Right. So. <laughs> Note to self. Not everyone apparently feels that <laughs> yeah, way. <right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how uh, how long does a, a project like this, which does include an incredible amount of world building, uh, in fact, you've got a, a glossary in the back of just all the uh, the terms that you're you're keeping track of for the the reader. How long does a project like this take you to 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 write? It's hard to say because um, you know, in some ways, a lot of those little pieces that I was putting together uh, in my imagination were that was probably a couple of years. I would say at least two years of um, of just starting with that, doing some of that world building and making. And I would make notes, you know, I have notebooks and documents on my computer where when I would think of new ideas, I would uh, kind of add them into the mix and refine what I, what the rules of the world were supposed to be. 
and then eventually settling in on the character and the plot and where I want the story to go. And, um, and I'm, I am one who, um, I do outline, but it's, it's more of, to me, it, it feels that the process of creating a story is just, uh, building it in my imagination and then starting to give it structure. I can't, you can, as, as you well know, Rob, you know, you can, it's hard to hold all those ideas for the story in your head. Um, and so I do a lot of the, the organizing, the, the plotting, I guess, in advance is, is a way of just trying to organize the different pieces that I'm thinking about for the story. Um, and I, I consider that almost a first draft of building the outline for the story that I want to tell and, and leaving a lot of room and a lot of possibilities as I start into writing the actual uh, first draft in novel form, um, in prose form, uh, as with giving that a lot of option to, to, to be flexible, to, to change and adapt as I, as I go along. So, and so I'd say once I started actually writing the, the first draft of the story, um, I spent a year and a half, I think, on that book. I'm not the fastest writer in the world. So, and I would say that's pretty typical for my books. The Nine Pound Hammer, I spent three and a half years getting that one together. Of course, that was my first first novel that really in earned, I mean, I'd written some bad novels in the past that I hope will never see the light of day, but that was the first <laughs> one um, that felt like my skills were coming together on it. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's often a, a more than a year um, of working on a story of a draft before I even turn my attention to revisions and and sharing it with others for feedback. So how detailed an outline are we talking about? How long is that usually and, and how much is in there? It varies from book to book. I don't I don't I feel like every time I start a new book, it's like I, I forget what I did last time. It's like, how do how do I how do you create a story? I, I forgot what I, I did before. Um, so each one is a little bit different. I'm trying to think of, lately I've been, um, my outlines have been almost like long synopsis of the story um, where I'll just kind of write it, you know, write it out. But I feel like the Pinocchio story was one that I organized at that time a little bit more on the big turning points for the story. Like, and it, yes, actually I know that that's how it was because I was using the original framework. You know, I knew that I, that I wanted, that my vision for this story was that I wanted to follow in general the traditional Pinocchio story. The, you know, kind of the, um, he and, you know, meeting Geppetto at that beginning, uh, dealing with the, the, the talking cricket, um, the, the fox and the, the cat, uh, the, uh, the kind of marionette theater part, which in mine has that kind of battle theater in, in Siena. Um, and Huge improvement, by the way. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, usually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, which was, you know, and, and part of what was fun with some of those was letting uh, letting the original story inspire and guide what I wanted to do, but just putting my own twist onto it. You know, if we asked 100 different people to rewrite Pinocchio, they're going to all write it in a different way because that toy box of their imagination, all those things that they like to play with is going to be different, you know, different pieces. And for me, the you know part of uh, what helped to build the world was, for example, in the original Pinocchio, you have the you know the marionette theater that Pinocchio kind of gets uh, trapped in there, and it's led by um, 
oh gosh, I'm, my Italian is off now, but it's like Mangiafuco or something like that, which is like the fire eater uh, was that character's name. And then just thinking, well, hold it. What is, who's going to run this theater? And then the fire eater thing led to this idea that it would be a kind of fire elemental being that runs the theater who becomes that, you know, that figure uh, uh, <laughs> in the book. Um, so a lot of, in other words, a lot of what guided the original story and building the outline were those those main characters from the original, the turning points, and thinking of how I wanted to do maybe something a little bit different thematically with those, the way the story arced to Pinocchio, um, coming to be aware of what it is to be alive in the world, to feel love and friendship. and. So by the time you get to book two, do you feel a little bit more free that you've 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 done the service to the original Pinocchio and now you can kind of it's Bemis time, baby. You can do that's whatever right, you want. Right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was what was fun. And that's what made the writing the second book so different was because there was no source material. There was no kind of original story that I, for better or worse, had to follow. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of imagining, uh, yeah, where do I want my where do I want my heroes to go next? What sort of adventures do I want them to have? And and to, and for it to be something that allows Pinocchio to continue to grow and evolve uh, as a character. That could be one of the challenges with, in writing a series in general is um, where do you take your character next? You know, I mean, you can always just write a, a, a sequel where more stuff happens, but uh, that stuff needs to be meaningful to the characters evolution to to uh, to the way that they are like we all are you know evolving and learning and growing so. you can always just open by uh, killing one of the beloved main characters and like ah oh, now the book is about dealing with this loss there you <laughs> go <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that'll do it <laughs> At what point did you know that Disney Hyperion was gonna was gonna pick this up? I'm assuming well after it was written, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was writing the book, it, it was not something that was uh, necessarily intended for Disney. So that was that was that worked out really nicely. Um, because at this point, the the Pinocchio it, Pinocchio is in the public domain, just like um, Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland. Anyone can write a Pinocchio story um, at this point, and and Disney didn't own it i mean because it was um it wasn't like working with uh you know i couldn't have written a frozen you know book with that kind of thing you know because those are that's intellectual property that definitely belongs to disney um and so it was a book that got shopped to a lot of different publishers and just happened that disney was was the one that came in with the you know with the best offer and the most excitement and um was a fun fun place for it to land <laughs> considering that they already had the Pinocchio IP from the movie already. Yeah, so. I wondered, was there ever any pressure to be like, hey, can we just put a little bit more of uh, our stuff in there? No, because the the film division and the publishing division just are so separate from one another. Um, they, from what, I, my under, from what I gather, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of interaction or communication between the two, except that um, often when Disney... Purchase, when Disney Hyperion gets a book, there is always that thought that will the, could this be something that could be developed across multiple platforms? Could could this book become, you know, a movie or a TV show or something else? Um, and unfortunately, for which I didn't really think through at the time, but was that 
Disney's already been uh, in, you know, they've had this game plan of doing a lot of live action remakes. And so there was already that plan in place of doing the live action remake, which meant that the Wooden Prince was not going to be the, a movie version that Disney was going to put out, unfortunately. So. <laughs> oh, are they, are they, are they doing a, a live action Pinocchio? They are. They are, yeah. Attention Disney, don't do that. We've seen yeah. that movie. Do yeah. the Wooden Prince. Do the Wooden Prince. Yes, yeah, sir. Let's tell them. Let's, let's, let's rally the troops. And uh, <laughs> it might not be too late. <laughs> I didn't see The Lion King. I listened to the soundtrack. Yeah. I was very excited to have a new Hound Zimmer score. But I, I, I've seen that movie. It looks yeah. shot for shot. But you bring out the you bring out Pinocchio and maybe you even get Jonathan Taylor Thomas to reprise his role. Yes. Uh, I think he did a live action Pinocchio at one point. I'm yeah. not coming. But if you make a wooden prince, I'll see you opening night. I'll be there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And now that you're part of the Disney family, so to speak, um, does that allow you to do to use their IP? Can you do Avengers versus Star Wars? Can that be your next book? Oh, no. <laughs> there hasn't been any discussion on that. So. <laughs> yeah, they, there's plenty of other people uh, uh, clamoring for for those projects, and so and I'm happy to have them as as a reader. But uh, you know, I, I'll admit that after doing pen, the Wooden Prince, you know, kind of dealing with an existing storyline, um, I was I was ready just to to for some of the the next projects to be to work on something that was purely my own, that was not something that was a retelling or a reimagining of anything else. And so, yeah, let the let the Star Wars novels go to somebody else who's who's uh, an even bigger fan than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, shadow with Daniel Jose Older, uh, he talked about, he, he wrote a book uh, to tie him to the Solo movie. Nice. Uh, he went uh, to Lucasfilm and I had to sit there with the screenplay with a guard sitting across oh, from him. <laughs> Watching yeah. him read it carefully. Oh, that sounds both amazing, but also a little bit limiting. Yeah. Because if you, if you want to kill uh, Lando halfway through, <laughs> you can't. Do it. You can't do it. That must be a satisfying <laughs> twist. Right. Right. <laughs> With um, oh, what are the questions that I wanted to ask you? I want to do ask you a little bit more about Italy, um, because you said that that's the the one place uh, outside of Hillsboro that you might consider <laughs> moving to. Did this did this series get that out of your system? Or are you still thinking Italy might be the retirement home one day? Yeah, I don't know. I would I would it would it it would just be the vacation. You know, if I, if I sell the movie rights to something and uh, I have money to burn, then then I'll buy my. Uh, Italian villa. Otherwise, great place to visit. Great place, and I'd love to to live there uh, short term. You know, maybe a couple months, half a year. But it's I don't know. I just the, I become more of a homebody every day, and so and I love I love getting over there and traveling. But I I love getting back home also. <laughs> but yeah, we do continue to. My wife has family in northern Italy, and so we we have some relatives of hers that uh, have been fun to connect with um and they live outside of venice and my daughter who is a middle schooler now she's been over to italy twice with us and we're we're planning to go back next summer as well and so it's just it it it, it, it's the to me it's it's the way i like to travel i don't like to do a bunch of museums and hit the the big sites with all the other tourists i love just going into a little 
sleepy Italian village and wandering around and getting a cup of coffee and sitting lazily in the cafe in the square, you know, and, and that's the way my wife and daughter are too. We just kind of enjoy soaking it, soaking up the culture in that way. Uh, so it, they make good travel companions and Italy is a good place for doing a lot of that because there are endless little villages that are so charming and fun to visit. Probably endless cafes as well, right? Endless, endless cafes. <laughs> So um, what uh, what does your typical writing day look like at this point now that you're no longer teaching? You're the Jean-Claude Bemis, by golly. You get an idea. You say, hey, Disney, cancel what you got going. We're yeah. doing this now. <laughs> it, 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 I'm sorry. I wish it worked that way, Rob. But no, I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm no Rick Riordan. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think Rick Riordan could do that either. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, my writing day is such that uh, very typically I'm taking my daughter to school. I'm back at the house, you know, a little bit after eight o'clock in the morning. I head up here. I'm in my upstairs office um, and I'm working on projects. I'm, I'm for the most part trying to not check email, not getting on social media, just saving all that for later, starting my day in that creative space. I often find, too, that I don't like too much caffeine in the morning. I, I, I tend to wait and have my first cup of coffee about 10 o'clock so that I can start still a little tired. Uh, to me, it being a little tired keeps me a little closer to that dreamy, imaginative place and helps me to gather the ideas that I want for the day. And um, I might go for a walk first thing in the morning um, before I head up here to the office, if I need to think out a little bit so that I, I don't start the day with writer's block. Um, but otherwise, I'm, I tend to spend the day until three o'clock when I go to pick up my daughter on uh, working on, on the writing. And for the most part, saving the, the other working, the other part of the job, you know, the business part of needing to check emails and I work on school visit arrangements and some of those kind of things for the later in the afternoon time period. So that's um, after your daughter is home and yeah, she's doing homework and concentration. Yeah, and before I have to go uh, start dinner or something. You know, I'm, I'm I mean, uh, writing until three o'clock or, or trying to stay focused on what I'm doing. Uh, my brain's pretty tired at that point. It's time to, you know, people will sometimes ask, you know, do you, do you dream, do you, you know, do you have trouble sleeping because you're thinking about your story ideas? And quite honestly, no, uh, you know, I, I get it all into that work day and then I'm, I need to, to not think about it at night and just kind of clear my head before the next work day to be more effective. Um, but I'm, but for those six, seven hours, it's probably not really that much. It's probably more, you know, with, break for lunch and you know maybe taking another walk or getting some exercise in um but it still can be a, a good chunk of the day and a lot of it if it's not spent working on an actual draft it is spent uh, with what i was kind of mentioning earlier which is just kind of um trying to imagine and think about story ideas and put those into some sort of framework so that i can um wrestle with them a little bit better. Uh, for example, I have a, I keep a flip chart now in my office. And if there's a, say a piece in an upcoming scene that I'm not sure how, quite how I wanna do it, 
I might just take that piece of paper and it'll be a, a place just to write a whole bunch of possibilities out on the paper. I tend to follow this idea of the rule of six, which is that if I'm trying to brainstorm a solution for something, I might, you know, say for example, it's uh, Pinocchio has been locked in this in this dungeon. How is he going to get out? Um, then I might be able to think of two or three possible solutions to that problem right away, and I'll jot those down. But then rather than just stopping with that, um, of trying to go to six, because I often find that if if I, I put this kind of challenge to myself, that it'll force me to continue to think about different possibilities, to start to put the different pieces and ideas together in um, in often better ways than those initial ideas that I got out. And that might involve a lot of just pacing around my office, you know, <laughs> you know, trying, racking my brain, trying to think of other ideas and just as, as ideas come, jotting them down. But um, but I do feel like I need to write them down in some way, whether it's on a flip chart, in a little notebook, type it into a computer, um, just to, you know, the act of writing it down, you know, dreaming it up, imagining it, and then writing it down, um, helps to form helps to I guess uh, yeah formulate the idea a little bit better helps it solidify and grow in a better way so you mentioned you've got multiple notebooks is that is that notes and then you're typing your draft or do you do a handwritten draft and then type it I don't do a handwritten draft um I I, I definitely see the the nice the advantage to that and I, and I know why a lot of writers do that um but I just I just prefer to type when I'm actually getting that that draft down. I might have notebooks where I'm jotting notes down into it by hand, um, and part of that is just so that I don't have so many files open on my computer when I'm trying to look something up. I, if I have a have a dedicated notebook to the project that I'm working on, and I need to look back up, you know, what was the last name of that character? I can find it in the notebook and you know access it that way. Um, or if I thought of an idea for a scene, you know, like, oh, later in the book, I want to have a scene where such and such happens. I might have jotted some initial ideas down into a notebook. Um, and by tucking it away for a little while, often the ideas continue to bake in my imagination. Uh, you know, the subconscious continues to work on things, even when we don't think we're thinking about it. Um, so coming back to some of those old ideas that I've written in the notebook, um, I'll find that I come back to it with new insights on what to do with it. That's my uh, argument to uh, my wife. Uh, if I've got the PlayStation on, I'm, uh, no, I'm not playing a video game. The subconscious yeah. it's working. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. This is, this is important writing I'm doing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so those notebooks, do you auction those off? Or are they all being saved up for the official no. SoundCloud Bemis library? Yeah. Right. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't have any. Uh, any. Any uh, asp aspirations that they will ever be uh, uh, valued by anybody because I don't know that they'll make any sense. But I do. I save them all. I don't get rid of them. They they are fun to go back to because there's a lot of unused ideas in there. And um, if I am running into say a little bit of writer's block and it's not something I can sort out relatively quickly, where you're just having one of those writing days where you're just hard to get the energy up to get to the story. Uh, go, pulling out some of those old notebooks and just looking back through them, often we'll, we'll notice things that I wrote down that I never used in the old story. And I might think, oh, that could, that would be fun to include now. You know, maybe this is the right project to add that in. And so 
just by, you know, you have that choice, I guess, when you feel writer's block or you feel stuck or unmotivated. Uh, are you going to just kind of Netflix and <laughs> watch uh, watch Stranger Things 3? Or are you just going to beat your head against the wall and, and get more and more frustrated? Or are you going to do something? And for me, having things to do, like going back to these old notebooks, um, I, I find helps to generate new ideas, helps to get me out of it out of being stuck and are you working monday through friday with weekends off or are you every day what's your schedule look like monday to friday um weekends uh i really want to make sure that i'm spending time with my family on, on the weekends and and i and i do I, I i like the idea of treating the job like a job a um you know where it's it's not something that i need to wait to feel inspired to write that that I just have these kind of dedicated hours that I'm going to do my work and I feel inspired when I'm there. Um, um, and, but I'll often, if there's some, some time on the weekends, I'll uh, work on the project. And also I just try to keep a lot of other creative ideas. I mean, other creative outlets going, um, you know, we, we, we talked earlier about a little bit about music where, uh, you know, I love playing music. And so some of those times when I'm when it's not the dedicated work day, uh, I love turning my attention to playing some music or doing some art or uh, having these other creative outlets that aren't necessarily related to the story I'm working on. But I find that there's there's some cross pollination that goes on. There's some maybe activating different parts of the brain by doing that, that that exercises the imagination in a way so that it helps me when I come back to my story. Is there a lot of overlap between playing music and doing art and, and writing? Not, not so much, um, not, not as much of a, of a direct link because I really do think, you know, that there's, there's a lot, there's just a lot of differences, you know, playing, but the, at the same time, there, there are things like, I know that if I want to get good, at playing, I, I play fiddle is one of my things. I play violin. I, I grew up playing classical violin, but now um, as, as someone who's really into like old country and blues and you know that kind of uh, music, I play fiddle. So, and if I want to get good at a fiddle song, I have to just you know play it over and over and over again. And there are takeaway lessons from that. There might not be a direct link to the story. And honestly, I can't play the fiddle and think about a story, let my imagination float in that direction. It's going to be held on the music. But the, the kind of lesson of if you want to get something right, you got you to gotta sometimes just really practice. You got to do it over and over again. And that might be something to take to a particular scene that if I feel like it's not working, it's like, I'm just going to keep rewriting. I'm going to do this over and over again until I get it right. Or, you know, that, um, that kind of stick to itness of... Of, uh, of how to get better at something. I'm definitely going to take your rule of six with me, because uh, usually when I find a solution, I say, ah, it came to me from the muse. That yeah. It must be its divine yeah. problem. That's yeah. the one. <laughs> I, I'm just being lazy, because there's probably five other perfectly good solutions that you might never be know. Like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's worth going a little deeper into it. And and something about six to me has been that kind of magic number of, if I, if I can push to six, it's not that the sixth idea will be the best idea, but it'll often be that uh, that all six of those ideas together almost like come together with a seventh possibility or something, um, or the, maybe the first five help to guide the six to be uh, the strongest idea. So. 
And sometimes you go back and you're like, that first idea was actually the best idea. So that your instincts were right all along. And uh, it's good to confirm that. <laughs> that makes me feel better than, whoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how do you judge uh, when you've had a successful day? If, if, if you spend it with the six different ideas, do you go for a word count? Or is it, I was here all day working on the book and that counts? Yeah, it's just it's just showing up for work. It's, uh, attendance is everything. It's not a... <laughs> I don't, I don't do a word count or a page. I don't, I don't necessarily set a goal for myself like that. In the, although occasionally, actually occasionally I might, if I'm say working on a chapter and I think, Ooh, I might be able to finish this chapter today. Then I might kind of just set that as a goal. Like, okay, I'm going to really try to get this chapter finished. But otherwise, no, some days are just spent pacing around the office trying to think of uh, the, the, you know, a fifth and sixth solution to a problem and then just ending the day, not having necessarily gotten there with it. And that's a, that might feel like a bad day, but you know, I was still at work and I was still making, and I often find that even when I feel frustrated on a, on an aspect like that, and I get, maybe I do get to the end of the work day and I don't feel like I've gotten a satisfying solution on it. Then I'm often surprised at how, um, you know, I have my evening to myself. I do, stuff. you know, we watch some TV together or we go for a walk as a family or do something. And then I go to bed and I don't think about the story. And then I wake up the next day and I'll walk up to my office and, and I see the notes that I had from the day before. And all of a sudden I, I'm surprised how often it's like, ah, that's it. That's what I need to do. You know, it's like, again, back to that subconscious, the brain, just because you feel frustrated doesn't mean that the brain isn't working on it. You know, and, and I feel like I read there's a wonderful book called Imagine by Jonah Lehrer, uh, L-E-H-R-E-R, and it's on the neuroscience of creativity. And he looks, he gathers a lot of uh, scientific research. And I feel like that that was one of the things, if I'm remembering it correctly, that he was saying that when you often feel frustration on trying to develop an idea, it is it is the fact that the left side of the brain, the more logical, rational side, is often the first one to try to work out solutions which makes sense, you know, you would, you want to have kind of a logical solution uh, to it, but that when those aren't working and you start to feel that frustration, that it is actually the brain starting to shift the workload over to the right side of the brain, which is going to be the more intuitive, the more insightful side. It's the side that sometimes connects ideas that don't seem like they logically fit together. Um, so that, that, that frustration might actually be your brain doing the right work involved to come up with a solution. So to not to not uh to not try to avoid feeling frustration, but just to be with it and know that and to trust that uh, a good outcome, a good idea is on the way. I have found and I tend to think of these things more in magical terms, even though there's more than enough evidence to prove that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, just because I, 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 I almost get a little bit nervous that if I look too closely at what's going on in my brain, uh, then I'll I'll, I'll ruin the magic that's going on. Yeah, there. Sure, um, sure. But if I have a day where I'm really frustrated that ah nothing happened, and then I'm walking around later just kicking myself, I'm like, come on, Kent, call yourself a writer. What'd you do today? Uh, and then, uh, and then the idea comes the next day. It's like, oh, it was divine providence. The magic came all along. Yeah. So yesterday was fine. It's good because that was that was the magic happening. Right. But the the, the 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 neuroscience thing makes more makes more way more. <laughs> but I, but I do I think that there's something to what you're saying though of like of it, you know 
that it can spoil like look looking behind the curtain too much can spoil some of the effect that you know that that kind of that that belief that almost like magical thinking kind of thing has has a great role too it uh i think it helps us to be more intuitive about things and less a little less logical and what is what is creativity if not intuition often <laughs> you know having to go with your gut I think part of it might be that I read The Art of uh, Fiction by Ayn Rand uh, forever ago, and uh, I, I always called it We Have Ways of Making You Right, because Ayn Rand is this great villain in my mind, yeah, uh, exactly. and, and, and rightfully so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I always, uh, whenever I trash Ayn Rand, I always give her credit. But what uh, what an excellent novelist, what an excellent, well, what an excellent um, arguer, essayist. Uh, might might be a better term, uh, and good for her being a woman in the time that she was and standing up and saying, "You will listen to me, world." Good right. for Ayn Rand; she gets credit yeah. for all of that. Unfortunately, her idea is just terrible. Don't don't try to apply them. Alan Greenspan, why did you take her serious? Would you do? Yeah. Uh, but she has a whole section in her book about it's the subconscious mind uh, working problems out. And as soon as I read that, I was like, "Ooh, that makes a lot of sense." But mm-hmm. do I want to be the sort of person that agrees with Ayn Rand? That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> part of my prejudice against the idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I wanted to ask you a little bit more just about um, your music. Anybody watching, listening can on your YouTube channel right now go and uh, listen to a wonderful rendition of you singing. I've I got no strings. Uh, yeah. So I, I when I heard it, I wondered uh, one if you sang that while you were working on the Wooden Prince, and two if you ever did it in the Ultron voice. <laughs> I would love to hear that. I need. To, I'm gonna go back and try it in the Ultron voice. That would be really cool. So, <laughs> yeah. No. Again, I didn't. That in a lot of ways, in writing the Wooden Prince, I tried to make it as not like the Disney movie as possible. <laughs> you know. I suppose starting the day with that or when you wish upon a star would not would not achieve no, that. <laughs> that just doesn't quite fit with the world of the wooden prince. It's a little darker, grittier than all that. So yeah, that song, that version of uh Got No Strings from the Disney uh movie, the cartoon of Pinocchio, was one that I only even put together because I got asked by a a, a PBS show is interviewing me and um someone on the show knew I played music and they said you know, will you play a song? And and then I had to think, what am I going to even play that is halfway connected to Pinocchio? And I definitely did not want to do When You Wish Upon a Star. <laughs> so, uh, so that was the only one that seemed like kind of fun to do on guitar. So. Oh, I didn't know that was an option. I have squandered an opportunity that we can put you on the spot and ask you to sing. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. They can find it on YouTube or so. And then we can also listen to your band. Uh, is it Hooverville? Hooverville, yes, Hooverville. Not Hoosers, not, not to be confused with you in Indiana with the Hoosers, but uh, yeah, Hooverville. Yeah, and that's, again, something totally different than um, what I, I do with my writing life. But I do songwrite, I play guitar, I play fiddle, I play accordion in this band. And um, yeah, some of these musicians, we've been playing together 20 years now, and it's really all just for fun. We recorded a couple of CDs. It's on Spotify. If anyone looks up Hooverville on Spotify, they can hear our songs. And, uh, um, yeah, we and play. they're well worth hearing. I, I was listening to you yesterday. Oh, thanks. thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. But it has that, a lot of it is, is in, steeped in that whole American roots music. And I will say that 
that's where my that my passion for that kind of music, old country and blues and folk, um, was was something that definitely connected to my writing life with that first novel, The Nine Pound Hammer, which the the Nine Pound Hammer was you know a fantasy adventure that I wanted it to to be very American. I wanted this to be uh, a fantasy story where we didn't as much as I love wands and wizards and dragons and castles. It's like I want to strip all that kind of European stuff out of it and make it as American as possible. And so mining a lot of this old American music. You know we have captured so much of our folklore and legend and myth in these old songs. And so that's that's what was really fun about it. You you listen to a lot of old blues songs, and they actually there's a lot where they're singing about magic. You know there's you know that going to the crossroads, you know making a deal with the devil. Um, you know the these the mojo. You know like the this idea of like a little pouch where you, that would contain uh, magic roots and lucky. You'd like, I was about to say Lucky Charms, but maybe, not the Lucky Charms cereal, mind you. But, you know, those kind of things. That's that's all very American and was something that um, I don't know that I would have gone that direction with that story if I hadn't had that real passion for that kind of music. And so that's what I always love when a writer has a very particular, maybe quirky passion or interest. And they might think there's no way I'm going to be able to pull this into a story for young readers, but you absolutely can. I mean, if, if I could take old blues and country music, which most kids would put their hands over their ears if they heard anyone playing it, um, but then somehow mine that to turn it into something that was fantasy and magic adventures and stuff like that. I think, it's, I think that uh, we're, we're often full of all sorts of these interests that we have, you know, that they feel, feel that toy chest of the imagination. It's all just stuff to play with in your stories, more content, more um, possibilities for ideas and directions. Which is great, because otherwise you, all you get is books about other books. Yeah, who wants that? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're, uh, I mean, creatively, you, you do a little bit of everything. I mean, I read that you were originally an art history major. Yeah, but... You know what? That's that's because I was an elementary education major also. And here's how sexist it was uh, at the time. Um, not sexist towards men, but I think that towards women because art hit. I mean, because elementary education is largely uh, female. You know, I was really when I went through the program at UNC Chapel Hill, I was the only man in the elementary education program. And and at the time, the university said, well, elementary education, you can't just have that as your major. It's not a real enough degree and so we were required to have a second what year was this this is 90 i graduated 95 it's Not, changed it is 1907 what is this but can you believe that <laughs> like even that kind of sexism back in the 90s around something that is you know predominantly a, a, a you know, women in the, in that field um so i had to pick another major and if i was going to pick another major, i knew you know i knew i was going to go into teaching it was just something that i felt really called to do um, so I thought, well, I'm, you know, when you're at a university and you want a good liberal arts education, it's good just to try a lot of different things out. That was one of the things that I enjoyed about being at the university was getting to take philosophy classes and religion classes and things that you would never, you might not normally take a deep dive into otherwise. And art history did a great job of kind of pulling all that together. Art history is this cool major that you're not just talking about Rembrandt and Picasso, but there, there's a lot of classes that were 
to classes on things like Japanese tea ceremonies or uh, masks in non-Western cultural traditions. You know, you got to you got to just kind of take being offered the same university that said the elementary education is for the ladies only in, in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, sounds like there must have been a lot of uh, diverging viewpoints on on what uh, constituted education at that time. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? That was, I mean, the university was a really progressive place, and so that that decision that came down from administration at the time about the elementary ed program not being a real major was uh, who knows where that came from. But that was not the dominant view at the university. <laughs> so it was a really progressive place. Of well, I, of course, can, can can laugh because I'm in a liberal bastion that is Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's definitely not true that we were the absolute head of the Ku Klux Klan, I think, 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you, and Indiana and North Carolina, where I am, we, we both have had uh, Klan appearances in the past month. So. Oh, my. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that, but Indiana, yeah. And, and for yeah, both of them. Here. I didn't know. Well, yeah, North North Carolina. No, that's that's where Charlottesville is, of course. No, no, no. That Charlottesville is Virginia, and they oh. didn't. Um, and um, we just had one actually in our town in Hillsboro, uh, Klansmen in in full robes, and we did the same thing that you you all did in Indiana, which was you had just the community come out in force um, with lots of signs about love and inclusion, and you know that we don't. We will not tolerate hate in our town and um, drove them drove them out of town with their tails between their legs. And so and that was the same thing that happened in Indiana, is my understanding. So it's great. Great to see. It is. I, um, when I see you things like that, I'm, I'm at this point, I've, I've lived here my whole life. I just kind of used to it. It's like, OK, well, we all know what what fellows are and we don't talk to them most of the time anyway. <laughs> right, just yeah avoid <laughs> so i don't like make a note on my calendar of this is going on this day. it's indiana it's probably going on somewhere on any given day yeah. but also so is the indiana writer center so is uh, <laughs> all right, kinds right, of yeah, great yeah. stuff uh, on well. good things, so, yeah <laughs> which i suppose is uh, just america in general at this point <laughs> focus on the good things wherever you are yeah that's right <laughs> at what point uh, did you turn so with all these things you you can do uh, a musician, um, you could obviously be an artist. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that you'd had a small role in a TV series. <laughs> no, I'm no actor. I've never acted in anything. So I'm terrible at it. What uh, What point did you say writing? That's that That's where it's at for me. Um, it was after college, and so and it was teaching elementary school. So it was really just that going to going into the because I, I think that one of the reasons that I was drawn to elementary education in the first place, um, you know, because at the time I'm 20 years old at a university. And so that I mean, there's a reason why there's not as many people going into elementary education at that age, because, uh, you know, it's, it's you're so young yourself in a lot of ways. But I think one of the things that drew me to elementary education was that the books that I read during that time in my life were my very favorite books. And I and just often found even in college, I was continuing to read the Narnia books. I was continuing to go back to a lot of those stories from my childhood that I loved so much. And getting into the classroom with, with kids and, you know, the 95, that would have been, gosh, you know, I mean, think about some of the books that were, I mean, Harry Potter was, was coming out around then, The Giver by Lois Lowry, Holes by Lewis Sacker, 
can't remember when His Dark Material started, the Golden Compass, but I feel like it was right around that same time period. And so to me, it was a really exciting time uh, for, ch- for the children's books that were coming out. And to go every day to a job where I was getting to teach these kind of books to kids, to talk deeply about it. The kids at that age, they're super excited about the books. You know, like they want they want to, you know, at fourth and fifth grade, they're excited to be at school, excited to talk about nerd out on all this kind of stuff. And and so was I. So it it just filled me with a lot of excitement and energy that I brought home after school. And my original practice was that I would come home every day, um, which was elementary school. So the kids are often on the bus and heading home by three o'clock. So I didn't have any clubs that I had to, it wasn't, you know, a coach or any, cause it's elementary school. So I could just, I could be home by three 30. Wouldn't even change clothes. I'd just get a cup of tea or something, head straight to my computer and I didn't have kids at the time either, you know, cause I was, just in my 20s and that was my time every single day that I looked forward to you know during the school day as much as I enjoyed teaching I would often look forward to that as a reward at the end of the day was coming home and getting to just write and you know did that for so many years 10 15 years of well maybe not 15 because I taught for 13 before the nine pound hammer came out and I left the classroom but it was it was a you know committing to that practice and trying to do it every single day that helped enormously. So how many hours are you pulling after a full day of teaching at that point? I mean, just, I mean, even just an hour or hour and a half, you know, it, that was, that's often all it was. Um, it was, you know, cause then, you know, my wife would get home from work and we'd start dinner and we just do our own thing. So it was often not very much, but it was just to, to make sure that when I got home, Almost in the same way now, when I begin my work day, I just try to be very intentional about not checking email, not getting on social media, not getting pulled by the anti, it's like the anti-muse. It's that little devilish pesky creature that wants to keep you from doing your work and tries to tell you, maybe you should start some laundry. Maybe you should uh, clean up the kitchen first. And it's just being committed to know once you start, um, you're more likely to stick with it. And so that coming home from school and really not getting distracted by other things, not even changing clothes from work, just starting right into to writing um, was helpful to make that uh, habitual. You know, that's what it, that's what it becomes. It's an everyday habit and it doesn't feel right if you don't do it. So, Of course, of course. at this point, you, you, you have to have, and you do maintain your website uh, and some sort of social media presence. And then, of course, promotion is a never-ending thing that, that has to be involved. So how much non-writing writing uh, stuff yeah. are you doing? Uh, you mentioned that you don't do most of it until after 3.30. Right. Your daughter comes home and you're, you're done writing for the day. But how many more hours is that that you have to work that in? And whatever, what also what are you finding most effective? Yeah, it varies. I'm, I will say that I'm terrible at the marketing and promotion. And even being on social media... I, I'm not naturally drawn to, to it that much. And so I don't get on nearly as much. My wife is always uh, you know, telling me that I really need to be doing a lot more to get out there uh, on that publicity side. And I, I don't do it nearly enough. Um, but I, I do try to make that part of, part of that work side. But a lot of the non-business 
things that I'm doing tend to be related to school visits or setting up talks and presentations. Um, and I think I put a lot of energy into that because I enjoy that and I feel like I'm more effective at that. I think that as writers, we can't do it all. That there's, you know, there's so many people that will tell you, you should be maintaining a Twitter account or you should be starting a blog or you should start doing, start your own YouTube channel. And there's, there's you'll hear so many things and you just can't do it all. And so I feel it's best to play to your strengths. And, and I'm often better at going out and doing school visits than I am at having a, a dedicated promotion practice home. Surely as you get out and you talk to other artists who are doing what you're doing, you're going to feel bad about yourself and all the things that you feel like you should be doing more of. Um, and that's just inevitable. And uh, you can't compare yourself to other other writers. And I really try not. I mean, yes, it gets to me too sometimes. And yes, I might, if I'm at a literary festival with a bunch of other writers and I hear all the crazy marketing and publicity stuff that they're doing, I come away with this big knot in my stomach feeling like, I, oh gosh, why, you know, I should really be doing all that stuff too. And then I don't. Because <laughs> I really just enjoy the creative side so much more and enjoy the getting out to schools. And so, yes, maybe I should be doing more of that stuff, but I tend to just do the things that I enjoy professionally and creatively. So. Fortunately for me, I burned myself through some of that early on uh, because when I was you know, in my early 20s, I was looking at, okay, Stephen King was, I think, 25, 26 when uh, Carrie hit. How do I, I, I'm in the race against King. I mean, I've lost that race. He wins. Yeah. <laughs> I've just decided, let's, let's not try to be the greatest writer of all time. Let's just be the greatest Rob. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I could possibly absolutely. be. That's a pretty good absolutely, goal. Man. That, I mean, that is part of that that negative self-talk that we as creatives often do. You know, there's there's those little things that just want to uh, um, creep, creep up in your thoughts and in your mind that try to, you know, tear down all the good things that you're doing. So, yeah, I try to try to avoid listening to any of that as much as possible. So. I was kind of writing excuses, uh, just dressed up a little bit with a bit more nastiness. Yeah, because of course, yeah. what you're telling yourself is because I'm terrible at all of these things. That's why I don't have to write today. Why bother? I'm terrible. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Netflix it is. Yeah. And I love that Kristen Kishore, who wrote Graceling. Um, I, I feel like I read an interview with her. I forgot where I heard it, but she was talking a lot about that kind of those negative self-talk that people do. And she had a great way of putting it, which was like she almost imagines it's like this jerk at, who has insinuated himself into her office and she lets him sit there. He can run his mouth all he wants because she can't get rid of him. You know, that negative self-talk, we all do it. Um, but she just tries to externalize it and to say, you can talk all you want, but I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to stay focused on the task at hand. I always loved that. I like that idea of externalizing it because it is coming from us. You know, it's it's, you know, that negative. Plus, when uh, writing horror comes in handy, at least for me, because I know the voice of the monster. Oh, I've heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. just right. Yes, maybe that was Voldemort for J.K. Rowling. You know, it's just yeah, you know, that voice, that negative self-talk in her head. <laughs> Oh, but that's probably true, and that's probably part of the mental connection between Harry and Voldemort. There's Voldemort messing me up when I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
Uh, uh, and I, uh, I wanted to ask you another question, but we, we should definitely talk about revision because I teased it and I promised that we would for sure get a tease for your class. So let's, you know, let's just get right to it. Let's talk about revision. Uh, no, tease again. John yeah, Clavius, yeah, yeah. do you believe in flying saucers and have you seen one? <laughs> I've never seen a flying saucer. I'm sorry to say. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm such a horrible. I'm, I'm trying not to be such a horrible skeptic and a cynic about things, but for a fantasy writer, boy, I just have this side of me that is like that. So, I feel very strongly there's alien life out there. I don't think it's reached us yet, but I'm hopeful. In our lifetime, contact will be made. Let's hope. I'll send you some documentation. It'll, it'll turn right, your... yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can change my mind. Uh, I like that. You do enough fantasy during the day that when it's time for real life, hard, practical, straightforward skepticism. So that's with Bigfoot, ghost, all of it. Yes, yes. But I'm trying not to be that way. And here's the way that, because um, I really don't like, I, I realized maybe, I don't know, maybe five, ten years ago, I was like, I'm tired of, of always trying to punch holes in these other things, you know, being such a bad skeptic. And so, and I talked to my wife about that and she said, well, I'll tell you what, Ben, for your birthday, I'll get you an astrological reading and you can go, you know, and, and I did. And it was awesome. It was really great. And since then, I've been trying to do, to get more into some of those kind of things. I've been learning uh, tarot card reading. I'm starting to develop a way of like, casting you know like there's casting bones for divination but uh, casting various objects and just uh so that this is that's part of my practice to be less skeptical less cynical is uh i'm adopting some some of those kind of things be careful with the tarot card talk that'll get you banned in indiana school oh yeah yeah sorry <laughs> the tarot cards <laughs> are purely for characters so purely i do my tarot card readings on the characters alone so <laughs> Yeah. I uh, dated somebody uh, early on who was very into astrology, uh, and she successfully convinced me early that, that that's not a thing that I should spend a lot of time on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although to this day, uh, because I was classified as a Leo Virgo, I was born, I don't know, the sun was someplace, I'm, I'm a little bit of half of each, which makes sense to me because I'm certainly half extrovert, half introvert. Yeah. Uh, thus, I'm on the show talking with you, having a good time. And then later, it's going to be just me and my office and my little yeah. stories. Uh, but when I think of my uh, two main characters, Banneker Bones and Ellicott Skullworth, I always think, well, Banneker's the Leo and Ellicott's the Virgo. So I have a nice little framework for them. There you go. So, you know, what's fun for writing is, I mean, in this kind of imaginative practice, is doing that kind of thing and thinking like, oh, yeah, what what would be the astrological sign for my character? And then looking up you know, some of those books on like, well, a Virgo is often this way. And by looking at some of the interpretation on the Virgo, it might just help to, you know, to think out interesting ideas for, uh, for how to develop that character. It's actually something that is one of my other little side creative projects is, and, and, and there's actually some pictures on Instagram that I've been doing of this, of trying to develop my own deck of cards for writers to, to help with, or, you know, unraveling ideas about characters, about stories and plots. I feel like what's interesting with a lot of those practices, whether it's astrology, tarot, whatever, is that they're often very ambiguous. And so and when something is ambiguous, that part of our brains that seeks patterns, they'll make, it'll make the connections. So in other words, 
you do the tarot card reading for a character, for Banneker, you lay out his spread, you look up some of the stuff in the little booklet, and it just helps to draw things out of your imagination that I often feel were there all along, you know, that they just gives a little framework for thinking out the ideas. Yeah, I'm uh, all for uh, magical thinking until it comes to time to pay the bills, time to... <laughs> time to... I've never planned my year around magical thinking, but when something nice happens, it's probably more or less coincidence. I think, oh, it's it's the divine hand, and I don't have to work yeah, so much because yeah. obviously everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I, uh, I derailed us terribly. We were going to talk about revision. <laughs> yeah, let's talk revision. Oh, man, there's so much we could do with revision. But I, w- I will say, first of all, when, when I'm talking about revision, I'm not talking about line edits. And so... Um, and I want to make sure, especially for maybe some writers that are listening and they're, they have finished a draft of their story and they're thinking, what do, okay, what should I do next? It's not go through and start fixing typos and spelling things, you know, that because all that needs to wait until after you've made the big revisions, the big change. You never know if you're going to scrap an entire chapter or rewrite an entire scene and if that's the case you don't want to have put all that work into just the little small line edits yet um and so for revisions this is often a place for if you are not a plotter if you are more of a pantser you know a discovery writer who have you have written this first draft uh, primarily just uh, making it up as you go along this might be a nice time to actually look at it with an outline to, to pull out, uh, there's, I mean, there's so many different models out there, everything from Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey um, to some of the Save the Cat kind of um, uh, structures, but to, to, to kind of pull out one of those charts, one of those frameworks, and then to, to plug in your story to see, like, how well does it fit within this framework? And if it doesn't fit perfectly, no problem. It doesn't have to. Uh, this is not a formula that you have to follow. But by Organizing it into a structure like that, I think, can help the writer to have something visual and overarching, you know, really easy to digest the entire story. That this is how my story kind of flows from the beginning to the middle to the end, to look at some of those main turning points, and then to to go to each of the, especially with those turning points, and asking yourself, you know, those, those hard questions like, is this working? Is this, does this feel like this is as good as it can possibly be? Or do I need to come back and rethink this? Just because you've put in all that time writing that scene in the story, if in your heart of hearts, in your gut, you just get the sense that it could be better, then make it better. You know, go back to it. Don't be afraid to kill your darlings, you know, to, to just try to rewrite. I mean, if it doesn't work, then go back to the original uh, scene that you had. Um, but it's, but a part of it is kind of looking at it with that, that real critical eye, each of those main moments, looking also at the character to make sure that the character is, is the character transforming across the story in the most interesting and meaningful way to the reader. If my character by the end has kind of gotten to this point, has had this big realization about themselves or their situation, if my character has made this really hard choice by the end and has kind of committed to being in a new way, then how can I go back to the beginning and revise it so that I push that character even farther away from that end result? 
so that they have a lot more growing to do across the store. Um, and other things are, are looking at where the character is advancing and making some sort of advancement in the story is, um, you know, achieving little small goals that will add up to the ending and making sure that they are not happening by way of coincidence, good luck, or just some other secondary character who is really coming in to save the day and not allowing our protagonist to be as active as possible. Um, I feel like all, every advancement the character makes uh, in the story, the major ones, should be earned. That as if the story, in, in, in the fictional world, I believe that things operate um, by way of karma. That if your protagonist is going to have some sort of achievement, the good things that are going to happen need to be earned. And if their character has done something bad, um, needs to atone for that, they, they, they're going to get some sort of punishment or comeuppance at some point. Um, I just think that there's something about that that readers kind of expect and just feels right for a story world. So I often go back just to make sure that my character, if my character has formed a new friendship with someone who's going to become a main ally in the story, I want to look at that scene when they become friends and make sure that my character is really earning that friendship. That these two people have not just met and, you know, wow, isn't that wonderful that they just hit it off and now they're such good friends right away. No, the reader will find it more satisfying and interesting if that, if our character has had to work hard, has had to do something to to earn that friendship. So why, uh, why, 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 how, how, one, how do you know that that, that is what's happening? Uh, and two, why is it you think that, that that is an expectation for a story? Because, you know, people that don't believe in love at first sight didn't meet my wife in college. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that right. does happen sometimes in real life. Yeah, of course. And, and that's just it. That's what I, I don't know what I think about karma in real life, but I, I just feel like in the story world, it's more satisfying for readers. We won't, in the same way that I'm saying that, that our protagonist needs to be the main one driving the story, uh, that, that is true in fictional worlds, but it might not be true in real life. Yes, sometimes we, we have good luck. Sometimes we have wonderful coincidences. Sometimes two people meet and they hit it off perfectly right off the bat. But there's something less satis satisfying about that for readers in a story. Um, readers and stories like to, they, the, part of the appeal of, of a story in a way is the struggle. We, we don't want to hear about all those days that Little Red Riding Hood went to her grandmother's and everything went off without a hitch. We only want to hear about the story when things went wrong. You know, so there, I think part of it is, is like why readers are there in the first place. They like for things to go wrong. They like for characters to have to work hard to uh, achieve and to, to, to um, that their goal is not easily attainable. Um, and so I think it's, it's partially just the difference between the realities of fiction and the realities of reality. I don't know yeah, if I... Unfortunately. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Although when you're looking at your story and you say, well, they met, they chatted in a coffee shop for an entire chapter. So obviously best friends. How do I know whether or not that's, that's earned? How can I go back and, and decide whether that's I'm playing fair? Yeah, well, part of it is building just like you would want to do with any scene. 
um, to make the scene in, engaging for the reader, there needs to be a bit of anticipation of what's going to happen next. That um, we often think of a, a story having a, a large goal that is going to happen at the climax. But in a way, each scene should be built around like a mini, a mini plot arc of problem, process, and solution. That the character has some small goal here that um, but in, may or may not work out in the end. And so say we have these friends who have just met and they're sitting in a coffee shop. If, they, um, if they're just having a conversation and the conversation is going smoothly, there might be some really entertaining banter that goes on there. It might be kind of fun just to hear them talk back and forth. But the scene probably be more engaging if there is a potential for failure that we have a sense going into the scene that there, that there is some sort of little goal. Maybe it's that the, maybe the goal is for them, the two of them to be friends, or maybe one of them is meeting the other to uh, see if there'll be a study partner to help them uh, ace biology or something like that. You know, maybe that's the goal. And so if, the stakes would be, if I don't make this friendship, I'm gonna fail biology then? Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, so yeah, it's having stakes in a way. And also meaningful stakes in that there are real consequences for it. That from the reader standpoint, um, if we want these two characters, if we're hoping that the if the the conversation goes successfully, they're going to be friends. If the conversation doesn't go successfully and they don't hit it off and they're not going to be friends, who cares? So the, you want to make it so that it matters, and that might mean doing some. This is why revisions are so helpful. You can go back and then plant the seeds before this conversation even occurs to set it up such that maybe one of these characters um, has lost a good friend or is new to town. In other words, that there are kind of stakes here that this person that, that we we feel like in in our hearts as readers that we want this friendship to come together. And if it doesn't come together, we the consequences might be for us as readers, we're going to feel a lot of disappointment. Um, we were hoping this was going to happen. For our protagonists, maybe because they are friendless or um, are, you know, have something bad going on in their life. But that work needs to be done ahead of time to set up the scene. And, to guide the, scene, and, and to guide the scene such that it doesn't always flow in this nice, easy progression. So that maybe... You know, there are stumbling blocks. There's little obstacles along. The obstacles in a, in a story make the story interesting, but they also make the scene interesting, too, that it has a little positive and negative movement. Maybe the two seem to be hitting it off, and, you know, they're laughing about some joke, and you as the reader, you're like, oh, good, they're going to be friends. But then out of that joke, our protagonist says something that he thinks is funny but actually offends the other person. So now it goes back into negative to where you're like, oh, no, he just blew that. He messed that all up entirely. And then our, we now need to see our protagonist. What is he going to do? What is he, how is he going to then now try to make it up to this other person? Is it just going to be that the other person is going to uh, let him have a pass and just say, oh, I know you were just kidding? That might not feel as interesting and, uh, to readers as if the character then does something to try to make make that up or to cut you know explain that conversation away and maybe he digs himself into a deeper hole i mean that might make the whole scene even more interesting but it's that little up and down it's that that movement of some success some potential for failure that that 
thread a conversation such that the reader is on the edge, even if it's just a conversation in a coffee shop, we want the reader to be in a way on the edge of their seat wondering, where is this going? Where I, I am kind of anticipating that they may or may not wind up being friends at the end. And I'm hoping they are, and I'm worried they might not, but that the conversation is playing on our emotions as it goes along to make sure that we are engaged as readers. Makes sense. And then are you doing that? Do you, well, let me ask you, um, or I ask you about the larger plot. Um, when you're dealing with characters where we have a pretty good idea where they're going, like it's not going to be a huge surprise that Pinocchio and Geppetto are maybe starting to get along a little bit. Right. How do you play with that and, and keep us in some suspense? Because you do. Well, a, a lot of it is those, those little positive and negative turns of having our, um, having Pinocchio really screw things up sometimes <laughs> so that he makes Geppetto upset or having him sometimes do something really lovable and sweet that, um, that, you know, touches Geppetto's heart. And so it's, it, it's the variety of those things of making sure that I don't have uh, too many blunders on my character's part or too many kind of smooth successes, but it's that kind of nice up and down movement across scenes. And so I'll kind of look at, at the scenes individually and think, okay, we just had this really sweet moment between Pinocchio and Geppetto, and it seems like they're starting to bond. So I need to pull the reader, I need to have a reversal. I need to do something in the next scene with that will, will feel like it's pulling them apart um, and will get the readers worried. We're toying with reader emotions at all time. And so uh, part of the revision process is going through those individual scenes the arc of a character relationship and thinking about what is the reader wondering right now, you know, and then kind of guiding them through with questions. We might not actually write these questions out, but we kind of wonder them in our head in this particular scene with Pinocchio and Geppetto, the reader, what is the reader probably going to be wondering? And maybe right now they're going to be wondering, um, uh, should, Geppetto, that, oh gosh, is Geppetto thinking that he should get rid of Pinocchio? I don't want him to do that, you know, or is Geppetto uh, um, in trouble and will Pinocchio be able to save him and prove himself as a good companion, potential son, whatever it is. And so, um, but- I swear the talking cricket doesn't like the way Pinocchio is looking at that hammer, sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, keep away from that. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And then do you do that? Um, do you have any kind of a hard and fast formula? And I realize that you know, every book is its own thing, which is what makes this so difficult. Yeah. If, oh my God, if you could point to it and say, save the cat, read that, and every book you ever write will be a success, then we'd all read it. We'd all be J.K. Rowling. <laughs> but do you have any kind of hard and fast rules of um, how you want your scene structured throughout the novel to where you want a positive ending here, a negative ending here, now another negative ending, or now, I have three negatives in a, in a row and now I need a positive. Yeah, and when I'm actually writing the scenes, I'm, I'm not thinking it out that way. I mean, I might be a little bit thinking like, oh, you know, we just had this good thing happen. Let's, let's have a little bit of a reversal. But it's, it's often something that, that this is where I'll come back in revisions and set up um, a chart with a bunch of sticky notes that have each scene kind of laid out, not necessarily each chapter, but just each major scene, which could sometimes just be part of a chapter or could encompass a couple chapters. And to look at that flow and to think about 
uh, it doesn't have to fit a particular formula. It doesn't have to be a constant up and down movement, but just to make sure there's enough variety and interest that I don't have a section of the novel that's starting to have too much talking. You know, like, oh, we just had this one chapter where a lot of characters were explaining things. And now we have this other chapter where another character is explained. You know, that, that's where the revisions you might notice, like, oh, yeah, I did those back to back. I should probably break. I need both of those scenes where they're talking, but I'm going to need to break it up with something in the middle so that the reader will stay more engaged. Um, and so there might be kind of a punch list that you could go through on some of those kind of things. Like, is this scene dedicated more to action, more to dialogue, more to, um, you know, a movement of going from point A to point B, solving a, you know, there, there could be a number of things that you could kind of look at for the scenes, but by laying them out in a chart like that in the revision process or laying it out, as I mentioned before, in some sort of structure like Save the Cat, where you can look at the big picture of it, you can hold the entire story in your head a little bit better, um, can be a helpful way of then doing that hard work, which can be a bit of a slog of going through scene by scene and thinking how it fits with the scene before and the scene after how it's guiding the reader in the way that the character they see the way the character is transforming the the way they might just see the overall plot and the, the the main plot points that add up to the conclusion you know are they all kind of laid out in a nice way a nice logical flow so i saw that work you did beforehand of writing a synopsis and filling up notebooks with all of your potential solutions and things. Does that save you time on the, on the back end for revision? I think so. Yes. Um, and it, yeah, there, there's less, I have written books before where I did it just in a little bit more of a discovery process. And I got into some spots where even before I finished the entire draft, I realized I was heading in the wrong direction with the story that I'd gotten off course. And so I needed to back the whole thing up. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to cut these five chapters, go back to chapter three, and then start in a new direction. And that was, five yeah. chapters? Oh, that's a dark day. I don't know. I, I'm just tossing <laughs> that out. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do feel like with that particular novel, I really, I got off track. I just realized I wasn't heading in the right direction. And I, and I you know, just really needed to, to back it way up to start, start again with a new trajectory so <laughs> I'm a, I, I like to do a vague outline ahead of time i always know my ending i know some of the steps i'm going to take in between but i like to keep it a little bit loose so i can play with it as i go but as i'm writing at the end of every chapter i will fill out my outline diligently so that when i'm revising and when i'm planning for future stories i can, I can do some of that stuff yeah that's great Every writer has their own process, and it's, it's fascinating to see, you know, and, and that's why I love listening to what other people do with their processes. I might not do it exactly that way, but it might give me some interesting thoughts on things to try. I always joke, as soon as I have three authors in a row that are very successful on here, uh, that all tell me they do the same thing, the podcast uh, is over, I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all <laughs> I do. <laughs> that hasn't yeah. happened yet. Uh -uh. <laughs> nope everyone's got their own approach so um beyond the scene for scene what other uh, what other things are you looking for when you're when you're revising well is making sure also um just on the kind of craft level that you know the, the scene that we don't have um scenes where there's too much exposition you know one of the things that that we often do as writers is 
we we start to we can often just kind of front load those first chapters with a lot of backstory, a lot of t- trying to set up who the character is, what what their kind of world is like, just to help ground the reader. But sometimes coming back in revisions, that's where we we realize like you know what we're I'm kind of slowing the pace here with this, and it's good that you do it. Sometimes sometimes you need to just write a big info dump about a character's backstory just to get it out, just to get it out of your head and onto paper. Uh, but it might not belong in the story in the final version. And it might be that you can take out that whole kind of flashback or backstory or exposition and the reader will get it. It's it's inferred from what the character, the way the character's behaving or what he said in this chapter that this happened in his past. We don't need it. Um, or you might decide that there is some real critical information that's needed and deciding that it might be better positioned somewhere else that it might be good rather than doing this right in the first chapter when I'm trying to get the reader's interest I'm trying to get the reader excited for the story but all this info dump is really slowing the story down it's not going to excite readers that you pull it and then place it somewhere else maybe it's going to be the start of chapter two or it's going to be just kind of weaved into a, a particular scene into chapter three but but looking at some of that and, and seeing if it, it can be moved around. And over and otherwise, I mean, revisions, a big part of it is just kind of going through with a critical eye and trying to figure out what are the boring places and either I need to cut them or punch them up and what are the confusing places? Am, am I explaining this in the best way to readers? And that's where it can be very helpful to get other eyes on it, to share it with a critique group, uh, someone else who will read it, and they'll tell you if it's, if you're being confusing about explaining some aspect of the character or story or backstory or whatever. I noticed you're, you're thanking Stephen Messer uh, on, the, on the back of this book as well. Um, that, is he a critique partner? That you yeah, he is. he is. He is. Yeah. Stephen Messer, uh, an, a YA author named JJ Johnson and um, another friend of ours, Jennifer Harrod, the four of us uh, met taking a writing workshop, um, before any of us were published, and um, we, we've we've been together with each other on all the stories, uh, subsequent stories, and so it's been great to continue to, you know, to have that outlet with them. And you know, and I don't know if you know this, but Stephen uh, Messer is al- also published uh, Zeno Alexander. So I don't know if you know. It. Yeah, it's worth check. He's got a new series out uh, under this name Zeno Alexander, who is kind of in a, in a way like the way the Lemony Snicket kind of, it's like the active narrator in the story. Very different from the series of unfortunate events, but a fun story. And the first book in that one is called The Lie, The Lie, let me look, I even hold it up. The Library of Ever. Uh, plug for my buddy Stephen here, because this is, this is a really cool book and the start of a new series that he's doing. So anyway. Stephen, if you're listening, and I assume since we've mentioned you directly that you are, if you're looking for a place to promote that book, hey, come on the show. It'll be great. All right. <laughs> I'll tell him. I'll tell him personally. So. Uh, do, how often do you meet with your critique partners? It, I mean, it used to be we had a more regular schedule about it. But it, and, and it, when we first began, you know, we were still just trying to figure out how what was the best way to do a critique group. It's not like there were... Uh, a rule book for <laughs> an expert, a guide to it. Um, so we would often set, we, at, 
at the beginning, it was we would say every two weeks, let's send each other chapter a chapter that we've written. Um, that way, it gave we each had a goal that we knew we had to meet. We have two weeks to complete a chapter. Send it to the other people in the critique group. We'll all read it within a day or two before meeting, and then meet and discuss the chapter. And it worked great. It helped, especially in those early years before we were published. It was very helpful just in keeping us on a regular. You know, we had we were accountable to someone. There was someone that we knew they're going to be expecting this chapter for our meeting, which is already scheduled on the calendar next month on this particular day. Um, but the the truth was that uh, I think for all of us, we kind of realized that that process of of getting a lot of heavy feedback chapter by chapter um, was not the best way to get the, you know, was not the best way to get the feedback or because uh, in, in, a, in a sense also nowadays, it's better to just get feedback on the entire story. So it, it often becomes that we won't share what we're writing with each other until we have a completed first draft. And then it becomes, you know, a couple of meetings <laughs> to, to give that person feedback. So. Oh, wow. So you have to, it's always for me painful enough to sit there once, but multiple meetings. Well, maybe it just depends on how much there is to discuss. I mean, sometimes there's so much to talk about uh, in giving the person feedback that we can't quite get it all uh, in one meeting. It, it just varies. It varies. Yeah. I'm a big as much as I possibly can. I like to uh, get my critique group uh, an early sample, maybe you know the first 50, 60 pages. <laughs> Tell me all the things you're thinking now while I'm still midway through and can and can, can incorporate that as opposed to once I'm finished and kind of married to some of these ideas. Yeah. It's true. That's that's a great way, actually, of doing it. In fact, I, I, I like that a lot. It might be something that I'll steal that one from you because you're right. It does. Because at that point, once you've kind of established the story and you've gotten to that point, maybe 50 pages in, you're solidly into the story. It can be fun just to see, yeah, what are readers going to be expecting? What are they? Because as I mentioned before, I, I find it so helpful to think about in the writing process of trying to imagine what is the reader wondering is the direction that this story is going to go. Um, and some of that is that you do want to deliver that. To, you want the reader to feel satisfied where the story goes, but at the same time, you don't want it to be telegraphed out. So it's so obvious that this is the, the way the story is going to go too. So, um, and getting that feedback maybe first 50 pages in sounds like a kind of a sweet spot for it. Yeah, nothing annoys me more than uh, when two characters meet and I can tell they're already in love. Like that, there's nothing here. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's another couple of hundred pages, but I will not be the least bit surprised when they end up together. Clearly, right? right. <laughs> they're right. there. That's why I love sometimes when they have stories like that and the characters do get together kind of quickly, and you realize like. Oh, this isn't going to last. <laughs> Something's going to yes, derail. Yeah, that this. is the yeah. antidote to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost sometimes it's almost more fun to watch characters break up than get together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's something to be said for that. <laughs> that might just be a byproduct of, of getting married uh, and, and being in a solid relationship. Yeah. I'm not worried about going out and meeting somebody new. Oh, uh, yeah. Tell me what to watch out for for this breaking up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to avoid that. <laughs> And you use beta readers or people beyond your critique groups uh, to get feedback? I do. I, I have some just some other readers. And it varies from project to project. Sometimes it's it's kind of finding um, some other writer friends of mine who I know it, that they're not super busy and it's a good time for them. Um, so, yeah, so absolutely. I have some other, other folks that I like to share my work with. 
So, one of them um, is uh, um, he. I wish I had Drew, and, but his name is Andrew Chilton. I was trying to see if I had his book around here, but another one, and he's someone you might want to consider having on the show. Andrew Chilton. He wrote a book called The Goblin Secret. Okay. Fantastic. It's such a fun read, and so and Andrew's also another local uh, middle grade writer in this part of North Carolina, and so he he's one also that we often share each other's work, but also can just call each other and talk, you know, it's like, I'll get a text from him sometimes, or I'll shoot him a text saying, can I bounce something off of, you know, like, I'm not sure about, you know, and then he'll, you know, give that kind of feedback sometimes. Just helping to to think through ideas. It is, it is good to have some people like that, that you can just, sometimes just talking about it out loud. And I find the funny thing is half the time when the two of us will text each other and say, hey, can you talk? And then we'll set a time. You're like, yeah, yeah, give me a call at three o'clock this afternoon after I finish up some stuff. By the time that three o'clock rolls around, I've already sorted the answer out. <laughs> it's, it's almost like by having, by knowing that I'm going to talk to him and starting to think about what I want to ask him, I've worked the idea out of my head anyway. So um. <laughs> then you just call him up and confirm that you were right about what his input would yes, be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Had a premonition. <laughs> it came true. Well, send uh, yeah, I'll send all your uh, writer friends my way, and, and anybody who's ever listening, I'm forever looking for for a new guest, uh, and I do the best I can, but I'm lazy and I'm busy. <laughs> so if you're listening to the show on a regular basis, like man, I sure would love to be on it someday. My email is publicly available. It's bannerbones at gmail dot com. Send me an email. Let's make this beautiful thing happen. Especially at uh, our where it sounds like every other person is a novelist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll send some more your way to add. Uh, yeah, because yeah, Middle Grade Ninja's podcast has been so much fun to listen to. So I love I love all you're doing for our community and sharing, uh, introducing us to a lot of these other writers out there. I'm excited. I hope that other people are benefiting from it. But oh, yeah. as always, my, my my primary concern is numero uno, and I'm benefiting. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, good. Well, we yeah, want all it, things it, I've learned just this episode. I'm going to go back and I'm going. All right, this is now the John Claude Bemis method. Let's make sure we're applying the rule of six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's like they, you know, if Mama's happy, everyone's happy. So if you're happy, we're all happy too. So <laughs> out here, <laughs> that'll work out. Well, John, I uh, I know I've kept you. You're at a, for those uh, listening instead of watching. I've kept you at a standing desk uh, for nearly two hours now. <laughs> so I suppose it's probably time to start thinking about winding down so you can get on with your your writing and everything else you've got going on. Um, but I do want to ask you a couple more questions. One, I want to ask you what you've got going on, what we can look forward to here in the near future. I am doing a graphic novel. Yeah, yes. And so um, it hasn't been announced, but it it hopefully will get we're we're still getting an illustrator on board. Um, But it'll be a graphic novel called Rodeo Hawkins and the Daughters of Mayhem, which is yes. And it's uh, travels across the multiverse, uh, lots of alternate Earths, strange alternate Earths. And um, that yeah, we have a uh, um, this this renegade group called the Daughters of Mayhem, led by their 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 um, Peter Pan, a little bit Peter Pan inspired uh, leader named Rodeo Hawkins, and she's she's 
quite quite a number anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't worked on my elevator pitch yet for it, as you can tell. But it's been <laughs> it's been well, a fun if you're still looking for an illustrator. We're probably talking what we're how far out from uh, when when we can get in our yeah, hot little hands. Probably not to. I'm. I haven't heard a date yet, but I, I would think it it's gonna have to be early 2021. Because you're right, that'll be. I mean, for an illustrator to do an entire novel, graphic novel like this, it'll be, it'll be a big jump. Be a big jump. That make you a little bit nervous, knowing what a big part of your story that whoever the and we can talk about it now because there isn't a, a specific name attached. That's right. That's right. Hopefully, we'll we'll at least kind of share your vision because if not, you 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 might be stuck with something that uh, isn't entirely it's not entirely yours at that point, right? Right. That's true. Um, and I think this is where the music side of what I do artistically comes in, which is that in music, there's a lot of collaboration, you know, that there's a, that uh, I can't, you know, when I, when I get together with my band, when we're working on songs, you know, I'm contributing into it, but I don't have the, I don't get the whole say on it. And, and I'm viewing this story, this Rodeo Hawkins and the Daughters of Mayhem as a story that will be something that, that I want the illustrator to feel ownership of also. And so I'm, I'm happy to, to hand over some of the storytelling process to the right person. And so hopefully it'll be a good fit. Is there anxiety? Yeah, sure, of course, you know, that it could, you know, that it might not come together. But I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to find the right person who gets the story, gets the humor, gets the, you know, excitement of it, and we'll, we'll bring it to life visually. As opposed to all of your other books where there was absolutely no anxiety. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> and then anything else coming up that we can uh, plug and talk about a little bit? Yeah, no, otherwise I'm, um, I'm working on, like I said, working on, on that graphic novel series. If people are interested in the whole kind of looking for cards for writers, they can follow, like I said, they can follow me on Instagram, John Claude Bemis, where I've been sharing some of the card designs for the cards as i'm developing it um and i'm gonna i'm gonna do a kickstarter campaign i haven't gotten it together yet but i'm gonna be i'm laying the groundwork right now for a kickstarter campaign on these cards which i think uh writers and creatives will will find really fun um so if if people might be interested in that or just they can like i said they can find me on instagram there um they'll be able to get all the details on instagram on your website everywhere everywhere you are the the GoFund, the Kickstarter. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten to that point yet, but yes, if they go, I'm JohnClaudeBemis.com. So that's my website. It has links to all that other stuff, and as well as workshops, because I am doing, uh, like I said, leading some workshops. So if folks are here in North Carolina and would like to take a, a weekend workshop, uh, and to see if I'm speaking somewhere, like in an SCBWI conference or some a writing conference somewhere else, because there's some of those as well coming up in the next year. They can come running us when they're like, I listened to you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Here's all the questions I wanted to be asked, but you were yes. the jerk was busy asking about yeah, flying well, saucers yeah. instead of fiction. Please <laughs> tell me about this. That'll be fantastic. Yeah. Do you ever uh, see yourself just writing like a straightforward narrative, the boy and the water moccasin snake, or yeah. uh, something without more fantastical narratives? Or is it you think it's yeah. always going to be the fun world building stuff? No, I, I like I, I like the realistic side too. And in fact, that picture book that I wound up doing for Heifer International, the Floor and the Runaway Rooster, which was set in Rwanda, that was that's if if folks look that up. Um, in fact, if they order it, all the money of that goes to Heifer International to their good work that they're doing out there. Um, but yeah, that one is, there's no magic involved. So 
no water moccasins either, but hopefully I'll get to the water moccasin story another day. So part two, baby. Do you have genres that are like on your bucket list of uh, over my career? I absolutely want to hit some of these things. Yes. Uh, horror. I would love to do a horror story. And I've, I've got one of those ideas baking that I'll spend some more time. You know, I've been writing out some notes on it, um, but uh, it is just something I, I need to think about a little bit more before I get started on it. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, some, I mean, I love the, the, the idea of taking things like what you were talking about a little bit more memoirish. I feel like I have, I'm, I will never have an autobiography that will be interesting for anyone, but I would love to just take some, like the funnier moments from my life that, uh, that might make for a good story and, and write those either as short story pieces or something like that. So. Otherwise, you yeah, have an yeah. interest in writing a, a biography because I feel like you get the emotional truth uh, through through the novels, but there's way more interesting stuff that happened. Nobody wants to read a book about I came home, I love my wife, I love my son, yeah. I love my book for a couple of hours, and then I went to bed. Right. I love that life. I couldn't be more thrilled with it, but why would you want to read about exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, I think it's good that we have lives that don't that will never get turned into autobiographies. So. Yeah. But in general, like what you're saying. I, my brain, my brain tends to lean more towards magical worlds and uh, speculative fiction kind of things, and so that's more often than not, my storytelling will take that that angle. It's working out, man. Keep with it. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I love getting to do it. So. Last question, and then I, I promise to stop talking your face off. But this is the one I intentionally say for last to make up for all the questions I should have asked and just didn't think to on the t- at the time. Um, is there any piece of advice that we haven't talked about that you want writers out there to know that if you could go back and tell young John Claude, John Claude Bemis, do this, that would maybe make your, maybe have made your path easier. What, what would that advice be? Hmm. Let me think for a second. I... That's such a good question. You know, it's a question I get asked all the time. And that's why I'm trying not to answer with something that your reader, your your listening audience has has probably heard before. Um, but I would, I think I, the, the, the piece that has been most helpful, and it wasn't something that I necessarily didn't know when I began my career, but something that has just had a lot of longevity for me and it's been helpful, is the making sure that I'm spending active time at work just in my imagination. That we often think about the work that we do in writing a book as that time spent at the computer, but we often can't write every single day. That is just not feasible for someone to have that as a writing practice, where they're going to sit at their computer or sit down with their notebook and write every single day. But every single day, we can spend time daydreaming about our characters, thinking about our stories. And it means finding those little moments in the day where you don't listen to music on the ride home and you just have it silent in the car and you don't let your mind wander about what you want to do for dinner or what you're going to do this weekend, but you just think about your characters deeply and hold your thoughts there, doing a lot of deep imagining. Um, And there, there can be great times doing that, folding the laundry. A lot of my best ideas come when I'm in the shower. 
But it often means going in intentionally and making sure that my thoughts go there, not just counting on them to naturally drift drift into the world of my story, but but making sure that it's purposeful when I do think about my story. Lots of different times throughout the day. If only I could get my mind to stop, especially right before I want to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Esteemed audience, uh, as always, um, make sure you're checking out what's going on with the show at middlegradeninja.com. Make sure you're coming back for our next uh, talk with author Mira Bartuk. That's going to be amazing. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much for, for clearing so much of your time this afternoon. I've absolutely loved every moment of this conversation. Me too, Rob. It's been great talking to you. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for all you're doing with the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. My friend, I'm going to be around hopefully for quite a while, and when yeah. the uh, new book comes out, come back. I'll come Sounds up with great. all new questions to, to take up your time with. <laughs> uh, I am asking all of our guests to sign us off because I'm, I'm always trying to figure out what do we call this show, Middle Grade Ninja? How do we justify that ninja? Uh, and so our sign-off phrase is how, I, is how I've decided to resolve it. And the sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya, what have you. Hi-ya.